Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Eve Roski, to our show today. Eve is a Harvard grad lawyer, activist, and a New York Times bestselling author. In Eve's first book, Fair Play, she uses her background in organizational management to ask the simple yet profound question, what would happen if we treated our homes as our most important organization? She created a step-by-step approach to help partners rebalance the work of running a home and reimagine their relationship, time, and purpose. She's been called the Mary Kondo of relationships, and her book has sparked a national conversation around how couples can more equitably share the work of running their lives. In her most recent book, Find Your Unicorn Space, Eve goes in much greater detail about one of the subjects from her first book, which is our pursuit of joy, especially because so many of us are still missing this in our lives. Eve will teach you how to create time in your already busy life to tap into your unique expression of creativity and find purpose that will allow you to live a happier and more fulfilled life. Eve's work is also backed by Hello Sunshine, Reese Witherspoon's media company, whose mission is to change the narrative for women through storytelling. I'm excited Eve is here. We're going to talk about all things from how to rebalance all the tasks that we as women shoulder in our homes and relationships to how we can take back our time each day to create and express ourselves and so much more. Welcome to the show, Eve. I'm so happy to be here with you. I feel like we became fast friends through Hitha, and it's been really fun to get to listen to you on your podcast and get to know you better. No, likewise, your name came up when Hitha and I had our interview together on our on my podcast, and we met, and I am just so excited to have this interview, especially early in the new year, because you're all about women stepping into their full power in every aspect of their life. So this interview, we have a lot to talk about. I know it's going to be just a great one. So it's truly an honor to have you. So I want to jump right into it. And, you know, your childhood has truly made an impact in the woman you are today. You know, I met your mom. She's such a powerhouse, (laughs) an amazing woman. I love her. So I'd love to just hear more about your upbringing because it plays a role in so much of what you're doing today. Well, thank you for allowing me to talk about that because my mother is a, you know, she really is looking back and reflecting back on the choices she made that were so different than everybody else of her generation, I realized that when I ask other women and myself, who makes our decisions? To me, that's the core of feminism. Are your decisions made for you by your parents, by the society you grew up in, by your children, by your partner, by your boss? Or do you actually have the agency to be able to make your own decisions. Women are often in history not able to make our own decisions. So I think of my mother, and she really did make her own decisions. So I always think, why? She was from a Sephardic Jewish family. 
she was told that education didn't matter. She was told that she had to be beautiful and thin, and she always had extra weight on her body compared to what her mother wanted. So she was dealing with body issues from birth. She was supposed to marry a Syrian Jewish man who was at least 10 years older than her. So there were a lot of supposes and shoulds paths for her, but she decided to leave the Syrian Jewish community, get her college degree, uh, apply for a PhD, do it all through loans, learn to teach, eventually get divorced from my father when he left her, uh, when she was pregnant with my brother, restart her career and actually take back her name. Wow. She was Terry Madison, which is my maiden name. She took back her name, Terry Mizrahi, when she got divorced. And that was really hard too. She had to go through a year of the name change process. But the idea of taking her identity back was something I always resonated with. I think as I started to disappear into my own journey of unpaid labor and childcare, which I've talked about many times that this journey of 10 years ago to the gender division of labor was starting with a text my husband Seth sent me that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries and recognizing how triggering it was to be defined as the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. Ever since then, I think in the back of my mind, I knew it was wrong and that there was a different path because my mother had forged it for me. Yeah. And Eve, it, I want to go back a little bit. I mean, I just have goosebumps hearing about your mom's journey. I actually was doing research, but there's a few things you mentioned that I, I hadn't read about. And, you know, you talk about growing up in the environment, you know, your mom is this powerhouse single mom. You always vowed that you'd have an equal partner in life. Like that was a big thing for you. And I know, you know, you ended up going to Harvard, becoming a mediator, work complex family situations. And you talk about how, you know, you and your husband were a powerhouse couple. You were crushing it in life. So I want to kind of go back to that moment because you had this idea that you wanted an equal partner. But like you said, you know, this text message brought up a lot of feelings. So kind of walk us through that moment and that point in your in your life. Well, I think people ask me, you know, was there a seminal moment for writing Find Your Unicorn Space, right? My second book. And the first the first book, as you just said, was really understanding that I have been trained in difficult conversations. That's what I do for a living. I am a product of a single parent where I was a parental child and I recognize how difficult it was to be in that family structure. I had all of these reasons why I should have had an equal partnership in my household, and still it didn't happen for me. So the curiosity for why that was not happening for me and the ultimate solution that I was able to come up with consulting 12 expert disciplines is what Fair Play became. Now for the second book, Find Your Unicorn Space, the seminal moment from understanding why I needed to write this book as a sequel and it gets back to what you said about my mother or what I was saying to you about my mother, was really a journey through understanding that when Zach was handed to me 13 years ago, that was the day that society started to erase me. Your son, your first son. My first son. He's 13 now. I remember in the delivery labor and delivery room or right after I had an emergency C-section, Zach was brought to me and the nurse said, here, mom. And there went my name. And I remember then 
getting a necklace, a mom necklace from a friend on a charm. And it was so sweet of her to do that for me, but I started to wear it and again, lost my name. And then I remember sitting in a preschool class. And of course it was all mothers and a couple of gay fathers because women's time is infinite. It's treated like sand. So of course we can show up in the middle of the day. God forbid they ask men to do that, right? So we were sitting around in a circle. And I remember distinctly this preschool teacher said, look around. These people around you who you're going to be with for 10 years are going to be the people that you are best friends with that know you better than anybody else. And I remember looking around at Zach's preschool and smiling at these new friends and then looking down at my name tag, which said Zach's mom. And then I remember thinking, these people are going to be my best friends, the people who know me better than anybody. They don't even know my fucking name. And that's when I realized that there was an impetus in me to fight being erased, to fight an identity loss into my roles as a parent, partner, and or professional, and to fundamentally understand that I deserved a permission to be unavailable from those roles. And that societal pushback, what I started 10 years ago, is still something I'm working on. This is a 101 for all of you listeners. But that societal pushback through guilt and shame and being able to ask for what I need and to creating a true boundary around my life isn't about women taking a walk around the block or binge watching Netflix. A true boundary around life for women and the antidote to burnout is being interested in our own lives. Yeah. And before we go into, there's so much that I want to unpack with what you call unicorn space and the curiosity and, and the importance of women being excited and interested in our own lives. I want to talk about the way you really thought about fair play at home, right? It's not about 50-50 tasks. So I'd love to kind of hear your thought process because so much of what you teach really allows women to step into that power. And hopefully the next step is to create those boundaries. Absolutely. So we know that our time is not infinite. (laughs) You know, we only get the same 24 hours in a day as our male counterparts, but we've been taught that even though time is our most valuable currency, and you've talked about this, right? We, I mean, we were taught from birth to, to give it away. We're taught to give it away for free. And if time is our really our most valuable currency, then we have to realize that the place where it's most insidious, the most dangerous place where it's taken from us, our ability to dream and ideate and create is in the home. And that happens in many different ways. Society from birth starts telling us that our time is not valuable. We know if women enter a male profession, salaries automatically go down. We hear things like breastfeeding is free. (laughs) Even though it's 1,800 hours a year on average, it's a full-time job. Wow. But what starts happening to us as women is we start to shrink and believe and become complicit and our own impression. So I will ask you out there, if you've ever said to yourself, the reason why you do more housework, childcare, you know, if you have kids, you're the reason why you pick up the phone from the school when your kid is sick is because your partner makes more money than you, or your job is more flexible, or you're a better multitasker, or you're wired differently for care, or in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they what to do, I should do it myself or they're better at focusing on one task at a time and I can find the time. If you've ever said any one of those things to yourself, then those toxic time messages are what are ultimately going to add up to prohibit you from living a life that you are interested in. 
I know this question has come up on other interviews you've done, but let's say, and it could be a man in this situation, a woman, but let's just take the example you took, you know, the man might be making more money, you're taking care of more of the household duties. Your thing is all about splitting it, you know, not 50-50, going through your protocol of fair play, which I'd love for you maybe for our audience who's not familiar with your book, if you could give a quick kind of definition of high level what fair play is and the game you've kind of created around it. Fair play is a metaphor. It's a card game. There are a hundred tasks and the goal is that you split those tasks with an ownership mindset. You go through your deck together. So you decide who makes decisions for you and ultimately it's you who are making the decisions for you, not defaults, gender, family, expectations, society. You and your partner get to make those decisions, assuming you have one and you're not a single parent. But even if you're a single parent, like my mother was, you get to make You get to take agency in your own life, even if you're breathing polluted air, metaphorically. So fair play is a metaphor. And it really started with an understanding of the most important question that I've asked, I'd say, in this 10-year journey, which is, what would it look like if we treated our homes as our most important organizations? So one man, when I asked him that question, he said to me, well, you mean like my house when we wait to decide who's taking the dog out? right? When it's about to take a piss on the rug. And I said, exactly that, but whatever that is, the opposite. (laughs) That, but exactly the opposite. Even my Aunt Marion's Mahjong group has more clearly defined expectations than the home. Uh, You don't bring snack twice to that group, you're you're out. (laughs) So you forget your snack, you're, you're, you're just not coming back. But in our home, We've been taught that we want to use probably the three most toxic words you can ever use for your home, which is figure it out. We'll figure it out. Figure it out means that there's no systems in place. So typically when people figure it out, it means that they go back and revert to assumptions from their childhood, from culture, from what they see around them. And that's a really highly toxic place in which to make decisions. And so the game fair play, the notion of it, came from the second most important question I've asked in 10 years. And that was a follow-up to what if you treated your home as your most important organization? And that question was, how did mustard get in your refrigerator? And I love that question because I could ask it in 17 countries because everybody has condiments, as you know, right? Every culture has their condiments. So I could just sub in a different condiment for mustard. And what was happening was universal. Regardless of socioeconomic status and country, What I would hear from women married to men was, I get the mustard. There's mustard in my refrigerator because my son won't eat his protein without it. He'll choke. That's how we get him to eat healthy food. So there was a recognition, what we call in the business world, conception, which we get paid big bucks for, that there was a problem and then there was a solution. Then women would say to me, I get stakeholder buy-in for what my family needs, you know, from the grocery store and And they didn't actually say stakeholder buy-in, but I'm listening for that. And I monitor the mustard for when it's running low. That is the planning phase. So conception and planning, again, things we get paid for, you know, big bucks for in in our corporate workforce here. And then I would hear, oh yeah. And then I send my partner to the store and Eve, you know, he brings home a spicy Dijon every fucking time. And I asked him for yellow mustard and you, you want me to trust him with my living will? He can't even bring home the right type of mustard. So the beauty of understanding that question was that's just a classic organizational failure where you lose two things that you need for an organization to to thrive, 
whether it's your home organization or work or Mahjong, you can't lose accountability and trust. And so once I realized that you can start to use small mindset reframes to bring back accountability and trust in your home, Fair Play was born. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Listening, and now let's get back to the show. Yeah. And I know you've mentioned, you know, taking your mustard example, I'm laughing because it's so relevant. I mean, I don't have kids now, but I, I see it with my sister and friends around me is you give your husband or partner a task and he messes up. And you talk a lot about in your game and going through these different roles that you should be playing at home is you should really take the project from start to finish. If you don't know what the mustard is and you're just kind of coming in to help, like there is room for error, just like running a business, right? If somebody comes in in the middle of the project, 
project, it's not may not necessarily be what you're expecting. And you've mentioned, which is very interesting, you know, a lot of men do retrieve because they feel like they're not able to meet the demands of their wife. Or again, it could be vice versa. But I thought that was really interesting because, you know, it's not really something we often think about, which I love. Absolutely. And look, I center the heterosis gender patterns because that's where a lot of these toxic notions come from. But the truth is that half of my readers became men of fair play. And I was like, well, I wrote this for women. But but what was so fascinating were the responses from men saying, you know what, Eve? Yes, it sucks to, to have the conception and planning. Yes, it sucks to, to drown in cognitive labor. But I'm here as a man to tell you it sucks more not to have psychological safety in your own home, not to be able to know your role, not to know when to step in, not to know what you're going to do that won't get criticized. And so the way it's working now, people say, well, what's in it for men? There's so much in it for men. What's in it for, for every family structure? And by the way, this is not just heteronormative. I have a huge data set of trans individuals, but really an even bigger set of lesbian and gay couples who fight being put into these gender roles. I was just talking to my friend and his husband. They were saying they walk into any school environment or anybody and people joke, who is the wife? Who is the woman? Why would we want to put people in boxes as opposed to learn from places where there aren't those gendered assumptions and how we can do things better? It always just blows my mind that we're so entrenched in these gendered assumptions that even for couples who don't fall into them, we want to fit them into our gendered assumptions box. Yes. And, you know, as a woman listening, I mean, most of my audience are women, you know, they're hearing this, they love the concept, but they might think to themselves like, Eve, this conversation bringing up the concept of fair play seems very daunting. And I'm curious, you know, as someone who's trained in difficult conversations, what advice do you have for someone listening who wants to dig into your book and those protocols, but is a little nervous to bring it up to their partner? Well, I guess the best thing that I can tell you is that it's a secret formula. There's a formula for how to introduce these conversations. And that is the formula of boundaries, systems, plus communication. Communication alone is not going to change anything. I talk about in Fair Play that Fair Play started off as a should I do spreadsheet because I really thought if I had made the best list of all time, 98 tab spreadsheet, over 2,000 items of invisible work, and send it to Seth that somehow that would solve all my problems. Lists alone <laughs> don't work. They don't work. When I sent it to Seth, finally, after nine months, I got a monkey emoji, just a <laughs> monkey covering its eyes. It was a see no evil in my home. But what happened to me when I realized, oh, wow, you know, I made this list that took me nine months. It was literally 98 tab on an Excel spreadsheet called The Shit I Do. And I sent it to Seth and there was no response from him. What I realized is that when you know lists alone don't work and you're fed up or you're resentful or you feel that resentment brewing because things don't feel as fair as they should, really the only cultural narratives we hear are like the eat, pray, love narrative of you can blow up your life or start over with a new partner. And so many of us don't want to do that or that's a very privileged narrative. And so the other thing is you can lose yourself in domestic work and childcare, completely lose your identity and become a gray version of yourself. And as Ali Wong says, right, women collect diamonds because we need sparkle to compensate 
for the light inside of us that has died oh, after that's we have devastating. kids. So yeah. that can be our life, right? And again, to you, I call myself the ghost of Christmas future because I said to you when we met, this will never happen to you because I will be here to be your spiritual friend to Thank prevent you. it. But the the third way is to understand that when I became my own client, when I was able to build a system to say, there's three things that I need to do with Seth to move forward in our relationship. One is protect my boundaries. That's self-talk. These are all communication steps. Boundaries are self-talk. They are how you talk to yourself, that your time is valuable, how you protect your time with others, how you say no, how you are able to say to your partner or your future partner, as I said to Seth, you know what? I notice that when our kids go to bed, you have four hours after they go to bed to check sports center, write a PowerPoint, work out. Whereas I'm actually doing things in service after my long day, things for the household until my head hits the pillow about two hours after you get to bed. And Seth, that's fundamentally unfair. And that's going to lead to a miserable partnership, a wife that's extremely resentful. And I deserve as much time choice over how I use my day as you do. And so if that means that, you know, we have to reevaluate how we use our time, then great. Let's come together to do that. But we both deserve choice. We both deserve choice over how we use our time. That became really important to Seth because he didn't want somebody whose time is hijacked. That wasn't a, a relationship that he wanted. And so I think that boundary that our time is diamonds and we deserve to protect it and we deserve time choice plus an ownership mindset, which is what you just said, that when you hold a card, you hold it from conception to planning to execution because that leads to way more efficiency and you actually get to free up a lot of time. So again, it's your dog day. Guess what? You don't have to decide who's taking the dog out before it takes a piss on the rug because the decision has already been made for you. Tuesdays is Eve's dog day. And so we know who's making those decisions. That's extremely efficient. That's called a system. It's how we do things everywhere other than our home. And then finally, as you said, communication, being able to ask for what you need. And I would say it all starts there. And there's only one thing you need to know about communication. And this took me data to get to, but it was really fun. I surveyed over a thousand people on social media and I asked them what their most important practice was. And I was really hopeful nobody would answer communication because it was a trick question. And the good news is, ta-da, nobody did. Mm. I'm here to tell you that communication is the most important practice of your life. It is a practice. The problem with communication is most people think of it as a means to an end. When I ask people why they communicate, they don't say that they're practicing communication. They say, well, I had to tell Seth to put Anna's boots on because it was raining. I had to tell my boss that I was late with the assignment. It's always a transactional means to an end. And if we can change how we view communication to a practice, it's literally life-changing with the people around us. Yeah, life-changing in your personal life, in your professional life. I mean, people are always avoiding these difficult conversations. And I think, like you said, it's less daunting the more you practice and have the tools like your book really guiding you. So I think that's 
Awesome. And, you know, I think the biggest through line with your first and second book is time, which I know we talked about. So I want to kind of transition more into unicorn space, which gets me really excited. And, you know, it's interesting because when we met at your house, I was mentioning to you my podcast and how it's a side project and a passion. And you're like, no, 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 this is your unicorn space. So it really was a light bulb moment for me. And I'd love for you to share why you said that and what unicorn space is really. Well, unicorn space is also a secret formula. So if there's a formula for thriving in your home, and that's boundaries, systems, and communication, there is a formula for thriving in your creativity, which is linked to our mental and physical health, which is what we say we care about right now during a pandemic. So if you really care about it, it's time to invest in your unicorn space, the metaphorical and physical space, because women are not given space. We actually know, at least I know, from the studies that went on during the pandemic, including my own, that women are often given ancillary space. Men take up space. They take the best room in the house for their work. They shut doors. They are accustomed to taking space. Whereas women were telling me over and over again that they're trying to create space, but they're working in a bathtub with a child on their lap. And so the idea of taking up space already is subversive for women. So here's the formula, which is why I know this is your unicorn space. And again, for the rest of your life, whether it's get $0 from it or a billion dollars from it, this podcast is one of your unicorn spaces because it has the three elements that we need to check off and have in our lives, at least, at least in some cyclical nature. And so one is a curiosity, right? So the beautiful thing I was listening to your episodes being curious, you know, about women's empowerment, being curious about workplace practices, being curious about creativity. So you get to be curious. Next, you connect. So you invite people to be on your podcast. You take that step, which can be scary. You share with the world. And then finally, you actually do something with this interview. You edit it and you put it out there. You complete something. Now, for type A women like us, I would say we've been taught that to do something, you have to be excellent. So what makes completion so hard, the third C, you can have a curiosity, you can have a connection, but what does completion really mean? Does completion mean that you need to get every single Webby award for your podcast? Otherwise, it was a complete worthless exercise. Or does it mean that you understand that there's beauty in just putting out what you have to say in the world. And that's why that third C, the first C is very triggering for a lot of people who've been caregivers for a long time. Like I wouldn't even know what my curiosity is, what my unicorn space is. But for people who do have it, I will say this last C of completion can be a really triggering one as well, because we often are confusing completion with perfection or completion with excellence. And for me, completing a dance class where I fall in every turn is still a completion. It is still a completion. I really love that, Eve, because I think about that a lot. And a lot of my podcast, you know, the motivation of me doing this is to inspire women to take that leap and have the confidence. Because to your point, people are curious, they have these ideas, but it's really the hangup of the last point of completion of putting their business out there, putting their ideas out there. And I always think about what are ways that we can help women kind of go over that hump? Because I feel like men definitely have, I don't know if it's more innate or just more confidence to just go for it, even when it's not perfect. So what are some things, you know, I know you practice, you mentioned your dance class, it's not perfect, but it's still a practice you have. So what are some 
what are advice or tips you have for women to take that even small step? Because completion can feel so daunting for so many people. And, you know, I practice it every day and it's still a little daunting for me, but I try to still put, go through the whole process myself. Such a great question. I will say that I love the idea of big, hairy, audacious goals, as long as they're authentic. I talk about you have to add the extra A in because a lot of our big, hairy, audacious goals, back to who makes decisions for us, which we started with, are set by extrinsic motivators. And so it's time to return to our values and our intrinsic. But what I'll say about completion, which is so interesting, is that nobody wants to live in, as my friend Amanda calls it, a graveyard of unfulfilled dreams. And I think we all in our past can pull a story of somebody, a woman in our life that could have been a contender. My grandmother, I know she had a lot of trouble with bipolar disorder and a lot of depression. And I think in a different time, she would have been a vibrant shining star because she was so smart and so frustrated in her ability not to get an education, not to use her mind in so many ways. And so that frustration, that lack of completion, I hope it gives you that urgency to understand that whatever you do, whatever you put out in the world, yes, it's a scary time to put things out in the world. Yes, anything can be criticized. But the beauty of having it out in the world is our umbrella to the rain. It's not going to stop raining on women. We are never going to get to a place where the storm passes. It's going to be raining but we need a freaking umbrella. We can't drown in the rain. And these experiences of completion that can't be taken away from you are those. I remember I wrote a shitty chapter, a first shitty chapter of this book in the spring. And it was the same day that Anna took, spun around, elbowed me in the face, gave me this giant black eye. So your daughter. And I, yes, my daughter. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad I wrote that shitty chapter today because It was a completion for me. It was an experience that couldn't be taken away from me. Those words were out there. And that actually really helped me during this terrible other moment of my day where if I hadn't had an umbrella, if I was just, you know, elbowed in the eye without my unicorn space, I think I would have had a different reaction to her and also a different spiraling into how just hard it is to be a caregiver during a pandemic. So this allows us to have an umbrella. Yeah. And more resilience, I guess, also under that, which is, I've never thought about it that way. You know, one thing you mentioned, the first C, just the importance of us having curiosity. And you mentioned, you know, it could be triggering for people who are full-time caregivers who might not remember what their passions are or their interests, excuse me. And, you know, even thinking about my life, I don't have kids yet, but even working in a corporate world and investment banking, I forgot who I was. So anyone who's doing anything... (laughs) that is just all encompassing. You forget who you are. You forget what your interests are. You forget what your curiosity is. So what advice do you have for women to kind of rediscover who they are? Because I know that was a big journey for me and I'm still unfolding that as I go. Well, what's so beautiful about curiosity or I wonder Mm. is when you start with questions, you know, it's, it's less scary than saying I have one passion, right? Again, on my third grade board, I don't think I had gender division of labor specialist, right? I probably had like veterinarian, (laughs) but I know that that's what has happened to me because the interesting thing, and this is a back to your resilience point, which I think is so important in Angela Duckworth's book, Grit, I take a quote from her. I know there's been some pushback in her book, but I really like it. And 
one of the quotes is people don't really like to see anybody becoming. We just like to see what they've become. Wow. And I think that that's really true that we just think, oh my God, well, I couldn't be Yasmin because you have this amazing podcast and she has her life together and I'll wait till later when I'm more like her to do that thing. You know, there's so many ways in which society tries to keep us so, so small that the idea of having a return to our values is really where I want people to start. And so I have exercises in the books to say, you know, a lot of advice says return to what you love to do as a child. I actually find that extremely limiting because I had a very traumatic childhood and I was a parental child and I don't actually think I loved anything. I think mostly I was trying to get A's so that I could get out or there was a time seventh to ninth grade where I was smoking a lot of weed and doing other things, a hedonistic well-being to sort of escape. So I don't really look back and say, I want to do that again. So the idea of being able to be in your current values-based curiosity is actually really important. Curiosity can go wrong. Someone said to me, well, I'm curious about scrolling my friend's Venmo transactions. (laughs) I don't mean that type of curiosity. I mean curiosity that aligns with your values. So for me, being curious about the justice, hmm, I care. My values are justice and fairness. It's so weird that so many women I'm talking to don't have justice and fairness in their home. Or I'm so what tell me some of your values because I bet you they align with the podcast. Yeah, they do. And and it's interesting because I also want to bring up how important it is to talk to others because that helped me kind of define my values. But for me, I was always wondering why there's no women in these leadership positions in finance and tech. And then when I started running my own business with my family business, I also started questioning women's roles when they are trying to have a career and children, just because that was a stage that I was in amongst my friends and my sister. So I've, I've been always talking about women and women empowerment. And it wasn't until my husband and I kept asking, what are my interests? Like, I love business, but I don't know. It's, I feel like it's not fulfilling. And he's like, you always are talking and supporting <laughs> women. And he's like, how do you not see that? And I was like, oh my goodness, I didn't even think about it. So, you know, that conversation just lit a light bulb. I was like, wow, I am very passionate about women. It's something I've been doing for years without even knowing it. And that's what I love, right? So this ability to connect women with ideas, this justice angle, understanding women and leadership as a value. These are all things that will inform. And and you could have done other things with these and you probably will. I can see you in other mediums and formats, uh, maybe a show on MSNBC or your next book. They iterate on each other. But I think the beauty of having intrinsic values that are aligned with your curiosities means that even if it's something so small, it's your first step, My friend, she just loves the French language. She loves the French language. And so for her, and she is a great cook. And so for her, the idea of listening to cooking podcasts in French was her first step to say, I'm going to master the French language. And master for me, the completion for her was just, I'm able to literally have a basic conversation with a Francophile or a French speaker at 4.0 speed, or sorry, you know, <laughs> negative 4.0 speed. We're so slow. That's her completion. That's her mastery. Doesn't mean she's going to write a PhD thesis in French, but the small step of understanding that for her travel and culture was so important, but that she 
is stuck at home and doesn't ever know if she'll have a robust travel practice the same way she did before the pandemic was the return to language. And so the idea of travel and culture being a fundamental value for her and connecting it with the unicorn space, the acquisition of a language, knowledge, was the two values. Knowledge and travel are her values. Travel and culture. So I love how she was saying that she found her unicorn space by this understanding of her values. So that's what I would ask. I would ask everybody to do the values exercise in the book and really understand what your values are today with a future orientation. Because sometimes the values that served us long ago are not the values that serve us now. Like for a Jewish value, very Jewish value is obligation. And one day I said, you know what? I think I'm going to throw that obligation out. I mean, that value out. I don't really want to be obliged to wipe asses and do dishes anymore. So we're going to retire obligation for a while. Let Seth have that value. And I will (laughs) let justice and community be the values that I, I bring forth today. Yeah. And, you know, so much of really rediscovering your intrinsic values is taking the time to really sit with and have your mind wander and really think about what's important to your life. So if someone's listening, I know we've talked about this throughout the interview, but they're like, Eve, like, you know, that sounds all great, but I'm dealing with my kid schooling from home. I'm working from home. Like, how do I create this boundary that you keep talking about? Because I do know it's important. You know, what do you what tips do you have for anyone who's thinking that right now? Well, I think once you realize that this is not optional, it's not a hobby. Again, it's not a passion project. This is actually a link to your mental and physical health. So I will ask you, what will you do to stay alive? You know, metaphorically and physically, that's how important this is. If you recognize the importance, then you'll start putting time there. So what I will say is, of course, fair play, right? If you have a privilege of a community, it's time to start giving other people cards But even if you don't, if that's not relevant to your family structure, as you said earlier, the, you know, a lot of people who are not in that type of family structure also feeling that they don't have a boundary between work and life because they're picking up the slack for people who do have children. It's just, we've never had a place in America that has prioritized creativity in this way. So what I like to say is that I'd like to take stock from people who have done it. This woman this morning, I was talking to her. She's an essential worker and she had a really hard time during the pandemic. So she bought a Nikon camera on, on clearance, I guess, at, you know, one of the big box stores. And she said, you know what? I need to be able to pause at lunch when I get, before I get into work and after I leave. And so her way of pausing was to take a photo of wildlife on her way to the hospital so she'd pull over to the side of the road and take a piece, you know, picture of a lavender plant huh. or a, a leaf that was on the floor during foliage. And she's now starting to collect all of these beautiful imagery on her, her Instagram that I just started following today. I love that. But it's really this idea of starting to take these small steps to integrate into our current lives and building on things that you already do. If you are someone who gets a Starbucks coffee in the morning? Do you bring your camera with you? Do you take that one picture of the sky? Make it a ritual around things that you're doing, other things that you're doing. And I think that if you are somebody who's stuck in the car, commuting your kids, the ritual of listening to an audio book to make you curious about something that the audio book you will always listen to is nonfiction and not fiction because you're going to lean into your curiosity. That's what one woman did that she reads for fiction purposes, but she listens to audiobook for nonfiction. 
I started to do that as well. I thought that was an interesting way to acquire knowledge. So it's about building it into your everyday life and recognizing it's not optional. Yeah, I love that. And it doesn't have to be so intimidating and, you know, be like five hours every day. Even 10 minutes is a world of a difference. And I love that. Well, Eve, I feel like we could talk for many, many hours, but I want to close on a statement that I actually heard you talk about in another interview. You know, a lot of people tell women all the time, and this is something that I, that I often hear is, you know, there's no good time for anything. So just do it. So what are your thoughts on that? I know you've talked about it in a few other interviews. So I'm very curious to hear. Well, I disagree with that because I actually think that correlates with the three most toxic words for women, which are figure it out. Figure it out is not something, you know, we want women to be saying, we'll figure it out. Because, you know, we said earlier, this is about leaning on gendered assumptions for your life. And that means that other people will be making decisions for you. So instead, what I like to say is that, you know, there's we recognize the life-changing magic of organizing our junk drawer. <laughs> and I actually think that there is more life-changing magic in long-term thinking. doesn't mean your life is going to go exactly the way you will plan it out for. But that future orientation to understand and to expect certain things in your life will then help shape the values and the people that you surround yourself with whether it's spiritual friends who help you and say, you know what? I love you so much. I want to get you a radio show and NPR or a partner who says, even when we have kids, I want to invest now in understanding fair play so that we will never lean back on those gender assumptions. Or when we do, we have a practice to get out of it. Investing in those types of relationships is what I would say. That's what I mean by the life-changing magic of long-term thinking. I love that. And it's something that, you know, I, I definitely have a fear around having kids with my husband and still managing my ambitions because I, you know, I'm starting a business. I love this podcast, but really your book and just hearing you and, you know, all the other amazing women I have my, on my podcast just really gives me inspiration that you can do both. It's just around long-term thinking and having the right tools and systems in place on how to approach it. So we are definitely doing fair right. play well before kids. We talk about it, everything. Right. So I so appreciate this conversation, Eve, and you showing up here and sharing all your gems. This was such an honor. Thank you. Thank you. You're the best. It's so fun to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.